You are listening to your financial planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Now here's your host, Hannah Moore, a CFP and the owner of Guiding Wealth Management. Thanks, Charlie. Today we're sharing our in-person meetup through the local FPA DFW chapter. Casey Cooper and I discussed what we see the future of financial planning and what our value will be as planners going forward. We hope you enjoy. So the topic we had was future financial planning. And so I am curious to hear what your thoughts are, Casey, on that. So, you know, to me, you know, starting with, you know, what is financial planning to me Mm -hmm. uh, might help frame my comments. You know, I, I view financial planning as simply being able to provide uh, services to clients for compensation. You know, provide what they need. It could be many different forms. Uh, you know, no two advisors necessarily deliver advice the same way or about the same topics or with the same level of expertise. Nor do two different clients have the same needs or receive that information and advice the same way. So there's a there's a very broad breadth of ways that the advice can be delivered and received and it's up to all of us to find where we fit into that mold. But when we start thinking about the future of financial planning and and whenever I think about that in the context of what we need to do for our own practice and business, I'm trying to figure out, okay, are the changes that we need to make going to help our clients? Are they going to help us stay competitive so that we can continue to help our clients? Uh, Or is there some opportunity for us to just morph and when I think about, you know, that concept over time, you know, generally it tends to center around the flexibility of what we do increasing. Uh, we could focus more on a niche. You know, we could know, you know, who our top clients are very, very narrowly and go very deep in that. But things could change and, and we could pivot away from the world being able to deliver advice to that niche in the future, and I don't want that risk. Instead, I would rather be able to do a lot of different things for a, you know generally wealthy clients, and you know pivot and change as any business owner would. Uh, the future I see, you know, with robo advice and uh, you know trends within the millennial subset is that online advice or the ability to give advice anytime, anywhere will become increasingly important. Uh, how that's manifesting for ourselves is currently in staffing, you know, making sure that we have flexibility to manage our client base, uh, make sure that we have depth of experience we need for you know, our clients' needs, and making certain that uh, we have the capacity when clients need things to jump on it whenever that is. And, and I know that will change over time because not everyone, especially younger generations, will want to receive things by a phone call. And we have real-world constraints of compliance and how we do things digitally and you know, can't text message with clients and things of that nature. But we need to continue to push the boundaries to make sure we understand where our lines are today and where we think it'll be in the future, try to move that direction. So you know, just to bottom line, my high-level thoughts, you know, it is flexibility, uh, flexible advice, uh, being paramount for the future of a financial planner in delivering advice uh, as, as the direction that I'm trying to push our firm and, and myself. Mm-hmm. I kind of went with that same idea of like, what is the core of what we do? And throughout all the change, like that, that's what's going to remain. Mm-hmm. Um, I went back to Dick Wagner's 1990 article um, about what it is to think like a CFP. And like, that's this huge article um, that I think changed the profession, basically calling financial planners to become a profession. Like, how do we think like a CFP? How do we become a profession? And so I went back and I looked at kind of what you're saying, like looking at, I'm just going to read a couple things on here, Um, but looking at the classic professions, you know, law, medicine, theology, additional ones would be journalism, teaching, nursing, architecture. All of the characteristics of these professions are working with ambiguity. And it's, you know, whatever the future holds for financial planning, we're still going to be in that space of managing that ambiguity, of managing that constant change that our clients are in. And so you look at, like, what are the elements of what we do? I don't think that insurance sales or investment management has the ambiguity that financial planning does. Like, those are two separate things. I mean, we can technically analyze these arms of financial planning, but financial planning as a whole 
I think that'll always be there. Um, so I think looking for wh- what's the future of the profession. So my hope is that the future is that it actually becomes a profession um, where it's not. So just a couple of just quick thoughts on that. I think the public needs to view financial planning as a profession. Um, I know when the CFP came out with their marketing mm-hmm. campaign a couple of years ago, they kind of met a lot of resistance. But just the awareness that it's brought, I think, is a huge deal and a huge step forward for us. Um, we have to act like a profession. And so some of the elements, there's an esoteric body of knowledge. So there, you have to be skilled. The average person doesn't just get to be a financial planner. Um, I know whenever I say I'm a financial planner, people either stop the conversation or try to provide advice on something, you know, of, of here's what it, what, here's what I would say. And it's the reality is good financial advice. Isn't just given off the cuff. It's not just, common rules of thumb that we can just apply everywhere. It's not, you know, doctors don't just say, you know, eat an apple a day and you're going to, you know, keeps the doctor away. It's much deeper than that. Um, I think the minimal education curriculum was part of this article, what he was you know, saying. I think the work that college professors are doing is so incredibly important to, to our field. Um, and then, Advisors have to read that. It's one of my other pet peeves is how do we incorporate research and all this great work that's being done out there into our practices? Um, I think that's, we need to figure out a better way to do that. And I'm sure we'll get into that conversation more. Um, a sense of altruism. People become a doctor because they want to help people. Like people become ministers because they want to help people. And it's once we really start ingraining this idea of financial planning, like, I want young kids to say, I want to go become a financial planner because I want to help people with their money. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, that's kind of a lofty idea that's maybe not quite so tangible, but I do think it's important. Um, and then a code of ethics, which obviously is very much in the news and, and things like that. And we have a long ways of going before we figure that out. Um, but the other kind of this sense of calling, it kind of goes back to this, you know, I want to help people. And then... Um, to be a profession, it affects every single person. So whether you have no money, you're in a mountain of credit card debt, or you have $10 million, financial planners should be able to speak to you. Now, not every financial planner should be able to speak to every group, but we need to figure out how do we serve people who don't have seven figures. And I don't think that we'll ever become a profession until we do that. So what's exciting for me when I think of the future of financial planning is the people who are trying to figure that out, trying to figure out how to provide financial planning to the middle class and to the lower, lower socioeconomic groups, because only until that happens, like only then will we ever be a true profession. Yeah, And one of the common challenges that I see whenever I'm communicating with clients or just you know random person out and about town is they have a limited experience in viewing others' finances. Certainly they have a view of their own, uh, however biased it may or may not be. Um, they may have a view into parents or a few close friends, but it's a pretty narrow subset. We have a unique advantage in that we get to see many different ways of doing things. And generally speaking, no, there's not just one way that applies to everyone. And so someone that's successful in life that you know, would be a potential client, they haven't generally seen other ways to have success. They may not appreciate the risk that they've taken to have that success, and they want to apply their experience to others. I did this, it worked. You, your friend, their friend should do the same thing. Conversely, those that are in debt, and they don't have the seven figures and maybe you know, aren't the, the pure target for every single advisor, uh, they're dealing with such different issues of how do they get out of debt and they could go with the Dave Ramsey approaches. There's many other ways you could do it that from a math perspective would be better, but maybe behaviorally aren't. But maybe getting out of debt work for them. That doesn't mean it's going to work for the next person. That's a giant frustration for me is that the public in general sees their path to success or out of a problem as the solution. And to be able to accept that there are many different ways is an element of public education and awareness that I hope we see in the future mm-hmm. because that, that education process stalls the point of either getting the opportunity to give advice or delays the process of that advice being taken. Yeah. And just to kind of 
with that point, one of my other big pet peeves is it's so easy as a society to measure financial success because there's dollar signs. Like, the, mm-hmm. there's numbers. It's like an, an accounting mind. Like, I can say, I have a million dollars. I am therefore successful. But if you look at two people who are graduating college and one chooses to work in a nonprofit versus go into corporate America, they, they're going to be on two mm-hmm. different financial paths. Now, which one's more successful? You know, it's it, it, mm-hmm. that's a very hard thing to weigh. And if a lot of financial advice only centers around the numbers and not kind of these these mm-hmm. bigger conversations. I think that goes back into the ambiguity mm-hmm. of it's not just one direct answer. Yeah, an area I'm really excited about is uh, that we are uh, now a profession. Uh, I'll call us a profession. We're certainly emerging profession, but nonetheless one. Um, but we're one that now has a PhD program. Yeah. Uh, we're now subjecting financial planning concepts to true research and we're vetting it and seeing you know what the outcomes are and and things that we've probably known to be true some of it won't be or it won't be the best idea or it won't be the best application and it may take us decade or decades to get most of the financial planning uh, concepts tested and vetted through phd type programs but nonetheless it's coming and then hopefully we'll be viewed more like the investment world where it's it's disciplined Generally, people need and are willing to accept help. And then on the financial planning concepts, there'll be more tools where we as advisors will be able to stand on the shoulders of those that came before us rather than having to feel our way around the edges and figure it out ourselves as much as we do today. And trust our intuition and our instincts. There's so much of that going on. Yeah. Well, I think that's what's so cool when you look at the future of financial planning, like the people who started it. I mean, they went into insurance and sale, you know, insurance and investments and then became financial planners. So they went from almost a specialized to this broader, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of it was sales based. I mean, I know we, we sometimes that gets the negative connotation, which it is what it is. And I don't think it's always negative, but we're getting a whole new, I mean, I mean, I'm one of them where I graduated from a college program where I have an educational background and like that provides me a different perspective. So a lot of these new planners are coming up and they have more foundational understanding of financial planning than their bosses do. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's a very hard dynamic to work through um, mm-hmm. at a firm. Um, but it's, I think that's going to kind of be what leads some of the shifts and like leads financial planning into the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, another challenge that I see with the future of financial planning, you know, it, it's not unique to financial planning or investment advice is uh, fee compression cost. Uh, that could take any number of forms. And, you know, again, every business faces that. There's always going to be someone that does what you do cheaper. And, uh, you know, the process of financial planning being viewed as a profession will also be coupled with known value that that profession provides. And so I hope that that will uh, ameliorate some of the focus on cost and instead turn to you know advisor A versus B, what kind of value they bring to the table. Uh, certainly we try to do a good job of communicating that on our own, but uh, you know I fear that it comes across as a sales pitch because we're just saying it. You know, it's not easily demonstrated. Uh, you know, if I look for tax saving opportunities, well, we don't know it's going to happen. And uh, you may be able to do that better than I as a CPA, but it's hard to say if you work with us, we will be tax sensitive. And that should lead to blank in terms of better return. And I don't mean better as in higher, just you know, risk adjusted or after tax and risk adjusted, it will be more appropriate for you. And those are hard concepts to sell a client on. Mm-hmm. Uh, nonetheless, uh, Vanguard studies, Morningstar studies have suggested they are very real. And where most of the, using their terms, advisors alpha and gamma, uh, you know, where we're truly bringing value to clients in general. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a long process to get there. Very long. Yeah. One of the, um, at FP retreat this year, they did a lot on the age of acceleration and looking at how much change like our society and our world was going through. And they had like, mm-hmm. obviously not going to hear in the audio, but this graph where it, it, you know, curves up, but it's just such a dramatic and steep curve. And that's where we are. You know, it's 
not that long ago, we only had horse and buggies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now we're looking at, I mean, just the technology that we have and what we're able to do. And I mean, we're looking at self-driving cars now. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's, that's crazy. And how do humans process change? Mm -hmm. And a lot of what the conclusions were is that humans can't process change like as fast as we're getting it. So we are finding coping mechanisms and we're not responding as we should, Mm -hmm. as psychologists would say that we should. And so it's, you know, we, For some people, it's really terrifying because they're like, you know, financial planning. Well, that just means that all of my services are going to be outsourced. That means that somebody's going to be able to do it for 15 basis points. That means that somebody's going to be able to do it, you know, for cheaper and all these things. But I think it's a really interesting idea of who's going to help our clients navigate this change. There was an interesting article that uh, Michael Kitts has produced uh, recently or contributed to, uh, but it used the concept of chess. Uh, to illustrate um, why robo-advisors or technology isn't really the competition of an advisor. And, and so to quickly take you through the, the, the main point of the article, uh, you, know, you take your average chess player, there's a scoring system, they're not very good. And as you go to internationally competitive, they're much better. And then when you start talking about the best chess players in the world, you know, on this scale, they're way off to the far right end. They're the best that there is. And now, if you take the best computer program that there is for it, you know, it's another 10% better than the best human is at this point. The humans stand virtually no chance at this stage. And some elements of what we do uh, can be done better than, by a computer than we can do on our own. The repetitive task, uh, considering multiple variables that we, you know, or programmers build into algorithms, they can do it quicker, more efficiently, uh, more error-free. So to suggest that we can compete on everything with uh, technology is just incorrect. However, if you take really good chess players, not the best, not even internationally competitive, and you pair them with that best computer, they're about 20 to 25% better than the best chess player in the world. They're better than any chess computer in the world. It's focusing the human's efforts around the areas that technology doesn't consider, uh, recognizing where the traps are with whatever financial planning software we use, what its blind spots are. If you use multiple softwares, you know, not just for financial planning, but across all the things we do, understanding when to apply one software versus another. Those are the tasks that humans will always have, I say always, uh, this article postulated will always have an advantage over technology because it's dealing in that world of ambiguity that Hannah was referencing. You know, it's the thought where and we start to take in emotions and behavior and judgment calls that can't be foreseen and can't programmed. And you do have to rely on intuition. Also, there's not a, a winning scenario you could program. Yes. In particular, like that's easy with chess. Yeah. And there's even an AI that beat players at another game where it just learned by playing itself over and over again, but it, it knew what winning was mm-hmm. in this area that your ambiguity, there's no one winning. You can't just say, I get the client to this number because that may not be it. That's a great point. Yeah. Really good point. Uh, Hey, can you um, email us that article? Yeah. Can you send us the link to that article? Yeah, I'll send it to you. And we'll have it in the show notes too. So anybody's... The Kitsis one? about Kitsis and the one she started with. Yeah. um, What is a CFP? Uh, To think like a CFP. Copy actually. Okay. Okay. Um, so, I, I think there's a lot of factors. So we're kind of talking about like kind of this Mac, like this really big level of like what mm-hmm. is financial planning and and um, maybe we should stay there. So one of the other looking at like age of acceleration kind of these ideas is WebMDs for doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, that certainly hasn't taken away the need for doctors or TurboTax mm-hmm. for accountants. I mean, we still use it, you know, mm-hmm. we still use that or legal zoom for attorneys. It's yeah. And maybe we need something like this to help service the demographics that <clears throat> I can't sit across the table from them profitably mm-hmm. and, and do that. Um, so I think there's a lot of interesting parallels looking at, other places of change. Um, so Bob Barris came out with an article. Did you see that article? Uh, 
the youth-led rebellion brewing in financial planning. Oh, I haven't read that one. Yeah, so I thought it was a really good article. Um, And I think he brought some really good points on it. So I'm just going to read a couple sections of it. Um, But one of his points was, today the financial planning has simultaneously reached a point of rapid evolution and managerial stagnation. And so it's, as with anything, there's so much change and there's the people that are resistant to change. And it's there's there's always going to be tension there. And I think we're coming into that tension. Uh, one of He leads the article out by talking about how, what's his first sentence, I'm a bit horrified by what I hear from younger planners today. Uh, they say they want to take the next steps in the firm's evolution. They say they want to bring financial planning to the blue ocean of younger, not yet wealthy individuals who were, ironically, the same type of people that their firm's founders worked out in the early, or worked with in the early days. They want to implement robo-advisor technology and change your company's fee structure from the old AUM model to something that matches, but with more precision, that fee uh, charge for services. But that's not what I'm horrified by. I'm horrified by what happens when they propose these ideas to their firm's founding planner. Too often the answer is a variation of, you can make all of these changes after I retire. And I think, I mean, I know I've seen that huge trend. Um, And so it's what do you do with that and what kind of that tension is going to bring a lot of change. And I think it already is bringing change. I think we're already, I think we're past the bleeding edge of it. I think we're more in the, people are adapting this. And and so I think there's a lot of interesting changes that the the profession's going through. Yeah, and one area where the the future is now is uh, the Department of Labor's fiduciary rule. Mm -hmm. Uh, While we may get you know, another delay on the, the final implementation or may not, uh, it has brought to the forefront of the public, you know, the concept of, is my advisor a fiduciary? What is a fiduciary? I'm sure, you know, many didn't even know. Um, but I'm happy that that conversation is now in the public awareness. And, uh, you know, not just because it was being talked about at the law level, but because we're in implementation. And as a Certified financial planner and Susan mm-hmm. as well and Hannah. I, I don't. Mm-hmm. I guess you will be uh, with the experience. Uh, you know, we all have in this yeah. room a fiduciary capacity, but not everyone in the profession did prior to DOL. Now it's virtually unavoidable. You know, unless someone is very, very, very narrow in what they're doing. So to build the public confidence in what we're doing, that you know, truly we're looking out for their best interest. You know, in some scale, some form. Uh, is a critical element to building the profession of financial planning. And uh, it's exciting that, you know, now it is happening. Yeah. Well, and I think like, so I know a member of NAPFA, so I'm fee only. And I think that that was kind of held out as this holy grail. Like if you could be fee only, then everybody's going to trust you. The you know, public knows. I mean, I'm in several large Facebook groups where they're, um, it's like the public talking about financial issues. Um, NPR has some good ones, and there's some other places out there. Um, so I would definitely recommend just getting in there and just listening. Um, not that you're contributing, but just hearing what people are saying and the questions that they're asking. Um, but it's always just you have you can't trust financial advisors. You just need to find a fee-only advisor. And I think when you look at the future of financial planning, if we do things right, that's going to change to where it's not going to be get a fee-only financial planner. It's going to be get a CFP. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we still have a lot of room to grow. And I think that's where a lot of like the discussions and like the CFP board's um, new proposed rules of every, you know, expanding that fiduciary responsibility for CFPs. I think those are all really good steps. I think there's, we still have to see how it plays out because there's implementations hard. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're not auditing us. They're not, you know, it's our people who are not acting in their client's best interest right now, who are CFPs, are they going to change their behavior? Most likely not. I mean, the reality is the majority of them won't. And and how does the CP board handle that? How do we as an organization, how do we as a profession handle that? And I think we have a lot to prove, but my hope is that in the next decade or two or however many, it's not go to a fee-only financial planner, it's go to a CFP. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the concerns that we heard or I heard uh, leading up to uh, in various stages of DOL, uh, you know, generally, it was the older advisor that you know had their way. Uh, you know, the way that they did business, the way they preferred to, the way their clients were accustomed to receiving uh, investment or planning advice. 
they were more worried about DOL than younger advisors. Um, you know, certainly I want to make sure that uh, it doesn't compromise what I'm trying to do, uh, but I'm still relatively young. I can adapt, and as long as the vision behind that is positive for consumers, I, I'm happy with it. Uh, there's nuances that cause headaches. There's nuances that, in my opinion, are not in the best interest of client, but a little bit of bad that comes with the overall good uh, is just something that I'll have to deal with and happens with every tax law change and every estate planning change and, and most anything else that impacts us as a business. Um, but, you know, the I'll just deal with it or you can deal with it after I retire, that notion, uh, you know, I, I suspect that that's where a lot of the uh, clamoring for DOL being bad comes from because we are an older profession in general. Uh, it seems like we're getting younger because there's new advisors coming straight into the business as opposed to as a career change. Um, it still happens both ways, uh, as our room represents, but there still is a very heavy skew toward the older male advisor. And uh, you know, it's going to take 10 years before that turns itself over, and DOL may, may accelerate that greatly at which point the profession can start to move forward on the concepts, Hannah, that you positioned earlier. It remains to be seen if that will happen. It was certainly speculated it would be a strong push to create that, but I haven't seen any data that suggests it's actually happening post yeah. June 9th. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's such a, there, there's so many elements, <laughs> elements here. And I think, you know, as we were talking about um, financial planners coming into into business with already this foundation and this educational like foundation, I think that we're starting to see a lot more businesses being run as businesses. Um, for a lot of financial planning firms before, it was just, I'm a great sales, you know, I, I'm the rainmaker, I can bring them in and I'm kind of building out people underneath me, but financial planners, it's just like doctors. Doctors make some of the worst business owners. I mean, it's just, their skill sets are in two different places. And so I think what I'm starting to see a trend as well is financial planning firms that are having a business manager that are having, um, really approaching it more structurally that way, rather than just dependent upon one person or one personality mm -hmm. in their firm. Absolutely. And, and I suspect a lot of that has to do with, uh, the increased compliance. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't want to say burden, but certainly it is in some ways, but increased compliance requirements that the industry has experienced over the last decade plus. And as that happens, it becomes a, you know, essentially a fixed cost with a variable component. And thus the bigger the firm is, the more that you can share that burden, uh, the more effectively you can uh, ad address it at a reasonable cost. Uh, we're seeing this greatly in all of the RIA aggregation, you know, uh, across the industry. Um, clearly scale is working. It's a pitch that advisors are accepting, especially those that are leaving uh, you know, the Morgan Stanley, the Merrills of the world. Uh, there's a lot of firms, not to pick them out uh, specifically, but there have been a lot of examples where uh, teams are carving out of large broker dealers, uh, bank owned firms, and going to the RIA world. It gives them the flexibility to you know, offer clients what they need in a way that's not restricted as much, uh, certainly by by the companies they were with. Um, oh, I think ahead. that's a huge trend moving away from uh, the broker dealer to the RA. I think you know I've had a number of conversations with people at broker dealers who are like, okay, so why? What, what's the value that the broker dealer adds? And I, I think that there is value. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that there is, but I think the trend is going to be the RA route. Mm -hmm. um, I've had some conversations with people who are never going to leave their broker dealer, mm -hmm. uh, but they're just like, you know, they're like, we're not going to leave because we've been here for so long and all of our clients are here. But with all these new rules, aren't I just operating like an RA, but having to jump through all these other hoops mm -hmm. that I don't, I shouldn't have to jump through. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think that's going to be a huge trend going forward. Absolutely. And you know, when I started, uh, the concept of the you know largest firms versus going to a you know smaller firm or start my own practice or whatever you know the, the entire spectrum, the draw of the larger firms was purely marketing. You know, if I affiliate with someone, you know, it's the most well-established brand in uh, financial services. Does that make it easier for conversion of 
you know, whatever prospective client I'm talking to, does it make that conversion to client easier? Um, you know, the concept wasn't, is their product better? Is their service to me as an advisor better? It was simply, does it make it easier for me to do business? And, and what we're seeing now is that, you know, in a lot of ways it makes doing business harder uh, because you can't give clients what they want the way they want necessarily. Not always the case, but certainly a trend we're seeing. Yeah, and I do think, I think there's some interesting trends, like you're talking about like the merging of art, larger RA practices and RAs mm-hmm. buying out other RAs. Mm-hmm. I think that goes into a lot of that business side of it. Um, but I'm a small RAA. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would classify them as a lifestyle practice right now. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a growing trend too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, just with technology and the resources that are out there right now for new firms that want to start up, like it's never been easier. And it's never been easier to do that and ramp it up at a quick pace. I mean, there's just, there's so much, I think that's in favor of that model right now mm-hmm. too. And I know I've seen articles saying that that model is going to go away because of all these increased regulatory things. But it's like if you make the business decisions, knowing the regulate, regulatory landscape, you can make business decisions on how to run your firm so that it blends really well mm-hmm. with that. And it's not overly burdensome. Everybody's going to have compliance, mm-hmm. but it, it's, it's not – I think people try to – Understanding people's motives, I think, is really important, and I think a lot of times some of the some of the stuff that I've heard about how oh you never want to do that because mm-hmm. of the compliance burden. It's like well you very, have a very clear motive of wanting to keep people on the broker dealer side when I don't think that maybe is it hasn't been the reality that I've experienced. Yeah, I think you're living you know another example of the future is now with you know the at least somewhat a lifestyle practice. Mm-hmm. Um, Ten years ago, it would have been extremely difficult to communicate the way you do with clients, to communicate what you do the, and, and live up to the duties you have to clients by being flexible and able to deliver no matter when or where you are. And certainly there are, there are other examples where they're truly a lifestyle practice and will pack up the RV and drive around yeah. the country all the time. So maybe I'm speaking a bit more to them, but we really are living in an environment now where we can find where we're unique, where we provide unique value, communicate that and have it resonate with prospective clients or your current ones in ways that would have been extremely difficult just a few years ago. And to conceptualize that and embrace it and come up with my story or our firm's story and then put it out there, that's, it's a process. Uh, you know, it's one that you've embraced remarkably well uh, and communicated extremely well, but it is a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so much of the small RA space, it's you got to be just confident enough in a lot of things just to get it rolling, mm-hmm. and then you can start outsourcing what you're not good at. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so many resources now. So, do you see all of those resources that are available, you know, continuing to grow at a quick pace? And do you find that? Do you think that the small RIA, RIAs will take more advantage of those earlier in the future? I mean, I think that it'll definitely take advantage of them earlier. I mean, when I look at the XY Planning Network, some of the things they're doing, when I'm talking to people who are thinking about starting their own firm, I mean, they are, they know exactly where they're going and what they want to do. And there's just so much. I mean, when I started in 2009, I mean, I remember just, you could hardly find anything online. I mean, it was like, let me get the magazines in the mail. Let me read through those Mm -hmm. uh, because there just wasn't anything out there. And now it's, there's so much, there's a lot more out there. I still think that there's missing elements, but. You know, the concept that that brings to mind is uh, uh, completion. You know, in the investment world, you know, we've got virtually every choice, every way that you could want to invest um, available and that makes it a complete market. And so the uh, advice spectrum that's becoming available to advisors, the consultants that are available, in a way that makes it a complete offering to us so that we can pick and choose what we want when we need right. it. And I'm certain that there will be more bundled options available as well than maybe there are today, you know, just further, you know, further completing that marketplace to us as a toolkit. Uh, certainly not a landscape that I'm very familiar with at this stage in my career, but uh, clearly will play roles, significant yeah. roles going forward. Well, and we're still trying to figure out 
what is financial planning? I mean, there's still these big questions out there. And so there's so much, I mean, I always say this, it's, it's like we're in almost a wild west. If you, if you want, if that's what, if you're drawn to that, if you're drawn to that entrepreneur creating something, there is so much opportunity out there right now mm-hmm. um, to really build, I think, the career of your dreams, but I'm a little biased. What are some of the big questions out there? About financial planning? Uh, what is it? Like, is it the process? Is it the services? How do you deliver it? Like, do you need to have a six-step process? Or, I mean, is... Yeah, and to me, I don't even know if I care about those things other than yeah. the public needs to be aware. All I care about is, can I help clients and make a reasonable living doing so? Yeah. And can I be there for them over time so that they can continue to achieve their dreams? So in some ways, what I do isn't necessarily financial planning. It happens to be financial mm-hmm. planning. Yeah, and the CFP board just came out with their new, they came out with a new definition, let me see if I can pull it up here, of what they're saying financial planning is. Mm-hmm. Let me see so if Google. The delivering on two of the six <laughs> foundational yeah. topics. Well, now it's expanded, though, with the new, um, their new, with their new standards that they came. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have, I have it at home. I'll, I'll put this in the show notes for people who are wondering, but it's like 30 words. They really trimmed it down substantially, um, but there's still so much ambiguity about it. So like we can't, it's hard to say this is what financial planning is. Um, how I define it, how Casey mm-hmm. defines it, how Mayor Lynch broker defines it, how whenever Jones, mm-hmm. you know, th- there's so much, there's still so much, I think, undiscovered. Mm-hmm. One of the, so Dick Wagner, before he passed away, wrote a book, Financial Planning 3.0. And so he wrote, so we're kind of, a lot of my thinking here with it, to think like a CFP, he wrote that in 1990, basically calling financial planning to a profession. And then he wrote this Financial Planning 3.0 of what he sees as a new evolution of financial planning. So Financial Planning 1.0 was creating the profession, if you would, that to think like a CFP. Financial planning 2.0 is like a lot of the life planning that Kinder, um, some of the stuff sudden money is doing, uh, money quotient, things like that. And then financial planning 3.0 is, I don't even know if I can do it justice, so I'm trying to summarize it, um, but it's the idea of, he has this, he has a chart that he would do of psychology and sociology, right? How they map to each other. So sociology is the broader understanding of how people, how groups of people work. Sociology or psychology is the more understanding of how one person works. Um, so if we tie those down to a, down to money, we have sociology ties to economics, right? So it's mm-hmm. how do a group of people operate around their money, um, but we don't really have anything from the psychology to the money. So mm-hmm. there's if you look at if you think of like a two by two chart, there, there's just nothing in that space. And so what he proposed is that phonology, he coined the term, (laughs) phonology would fit in that term of how do we operate and relate to our money? So how does that relate to behavioral finance? To me, that feels like that box. So there is, okay, so a couple of things. Um, Some of the critiques that I've heard of using the term behavioral finance is we, if a client is sitting across from me, Okay, I'm going to say this. I don't think behavioral finance is a bad term, and so I don't necessarily subscribe to all these ideas. Um, But the critique of it is it's manipulative. It's saying, I want you to pick option number two, so I'm going to put option one, two, and three, and then you're going to, because I know how psychology works, I I know how to drive your decision. Um, Where I think phonology would be more, how do you approach money? What are the money narratives that we follow? And how do we understand those? And then once we kind of have an understanding of that, then we're going to be able to help people more on their timeline versus what I would impose mm-hmm. on that. Hmm. So that's kind of, I think. So the difference is the use of the tool set. Yeah. And so behavioral finance, I think, is important. I think it's all part of that picture. Um, but I don't think it's the complete picture. Okay. And I think this is where like a lot of the research and things mm-hmm. that are really developing in this field are so exciting uh, for me. Uh, one of the things I will pitch this. Um, so at the end, so Dick passed away um, earlier this year. Um, but one of the things that he had done is he had proposed uh, for him, phonology would be another major. It would be the study of how money interacts with people. Um, and so at the end of his book, he 
has um, an outline of a course that he, how he envisioned. So Davieski challenged him and said, you want to make this as a curriculum, like in the intro class, write out the, um, the curriculum. And so he did. Um, and he wrote out the course. And so they are actually at Golden Gate University this fall are going to be um, Elizabeth Chaton is putting together this course using his outline um, with some of the their lineup of speakers, like their lineup of guest speakers is pretty incredible. That's a wonderful tribute and legacy. Isn't that? Yeah, yeah. really neat way of doing that. Um, but it's they've started a, a financial life planning uh, master's or PhD program, I can't remember, at Golden Gate, and this is the intro course to it. So if you're interested in this, you can go audit it or look at their program even more. I mean, it's I'm tempted to take the class because it's like the all-stars of financial planning are the ones who are doing it. Um, is it only live or can you do it online? Do you it's all online, yeah. Oh, it is online. Yeah, okay. yeah, so it's online. So the registration's open now. I know they're sending out emails trying to get people to sign up for it. Uh, but kind of a really interesting kind of dive into this. I don't know. I think that a lot of the future of financial planning is going to head that way. And I think it'll inform planners significantly on how we interact with clients on a personal level. Mm -hmm. And he hears it's a, an academic discipline. Yeah. An like academic discipline. Psychologists yeah. and maybe a counselor. Like there's overlap. But one's going to be working more towards trying to help you change something about what you're doing and the other person might be diagnosing there's mm -hmm. both are useful both sides are very useful to each other but here the finality would be a discipline of mm -hmm. study and not just looking for outcomes right yeah yeah and we probably all do elements of those both sides yeah. of it just as yeah. you announced it just uh yeah all based on intuition and, and learned experience which doesn't get us there as fast and probably not as well. Yeah. But yeah. So I, I don't know. I see that a lot of as the future. Mm -hmm. Am I crazy? What about single practices versus ensemble? Is it, will there always be both or is one yeah. going to dominate in the future? I, does it even matter? I, I would imagine that comes and goes over time with, depending on how much regulation there is and, uh, generational trends, but uh, like with investments, there's room for stocks, bonds, alternatives. You guys, I mean, you can, you name it. There's a way to invest in it. You know, down into derivatives, um, because individuals are at different stations in life, at different ages, with different career paths, with different goals. It stands to reason that there will be different types of firms that are more appropriately structured to serve those clients. And I think that manifests itself in room for the entire spectrum of firm models or practice models. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. And I think there is going to be a pretty heavy weeding out process that we're going to see in the next five, maybe even sooner years. Um, and I think it, a lot of it's going to go back to what's your value proposition to clients. And I think that, number one, I don't think most advisors can articulate that. I know I struggle with that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, but if we can figure out what that value proposition is, it's a value proposition, like we were saying earlier, is investments or all of these other things. That's that. Mm -hmm. Those are the people who, who I think are in danger. And I think those are solo planners. I think those are ensembles. I think those are some of the big firms out there. Mm -hmm. um, but I think to me, that's that's the difference of what yeah. who will be able to stand at the end. Yeah, and and the, those that will be able to stand at the end. Uh, like any industry or profession, the businesses that can reasonably see what's coming, whether it's proactive or reactive, uh, realistically assess where they're at and what they're trying to accomplish, pivot, change, take advantage of the landscape, or just you know take the necessary steps to survive. Those will be the ones that make it. You know the ones that you know can can just look at a situation, assess it, and react, whether it's proactive or not. Well, and I think so much of it goes back to, so, you know, when, so a lot of people I listen to, uh, the people I know and have conversations with, they're either starting out their firms or they're work, you know, kind of the newer, probably 10 years into the profession and they're still trying to figure everything out and they're, they're highly adaptable to change and like wanting to pivot and do these things. And now that, you know, I have an established practice that's successful and, paying my bills and, you know, I can kind of sit back a little bit. 
I find myself, I mean, I'm very adaptive on certain elements of it, but there's some level where I don't have to adapt. I mean, mm-hmm. like, I don't have to be on that cutting edge of it. Like, it's I can, not broken. Don't fix it. A little bit. If right. it's not broken, don't fix it. I think, but what I've realized is I think the key is listening to your clients. So right. engaging with your clients of, okay, what's been valuable? Mm-hmm. Um, and having those ongoing conversations, I think, is what separates the firm's um, who are going to be successful from those who are not. I mean, because there are some clients, some of my clients have, I don't think they care how they pay for me. They have to have me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's a different relationship. And, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, making sure that I'm in tune with them and in tune with, you know, would this make more sense? And then asking them. I, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely brilliant. Um, one thing that's common in our industry is that uh, clients are sharing intimate things with us, maybe things they don't share with anyone else uh, other than hopefully their spouse if they have one. Um, and so they are putting great trust and confidence in us, but it's fairly one-sided. And if we can turn that around and, and put some value in their opinion, uh, you know, and, and true value, not just asking because we, we want to appear like we care what they think, but truly probing and asking as this firm changes over time, what would be helpful? What would you want from us? Um, you know, what Hannah suggested, uh, what do you find valuable now to help understand over time is what I think is valuable, what the client thinks is valuable. Um, you know, just involving them in that discussion in some way could be critically important to, to developing the relationship so that it's not just, you know, take, take, take. It's, it's a true two-sided relationship. And, you know, I think, you know, people have client advisory boards. I haven't done that yet. I feel like it's something that I should do, mm-hmm. but I just haven't done it yet. Because, I mean, that's a risky thing. I mm-hmm. mean, because they could say things I don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, like, but, right. And, and, you know, that's, that's part of it. Um, but I had a client who she just transitioned beautifully from selling her home um, to moving into retirement. I mean, just, I mean, just, I was like, how did you do it? And so I called her up and I asked if I could interview her and just mm-hmm. talk to her about what that was and can you walk me through what what that experience mm-hmm. was for you. She was thrilled. Mm-hmm. She um, When we were talking, um, she talked a lot about the idea of legacy and she was like, even you asking me to do this, I realize it's part of the legacy, like something that I can give back. Mm-hmm. And it was such a neat such a neat experience. And what was even better for me is I got to hear how she reflected on her relationship with me throughout the, throughout the process. And I learned so much about what she valued, what I thought was important that she didn't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it just opened up this really, I learned so much by just asking. And, and I think, I don't know, I always say my clients are my greatest teachers. And I think we can really take a lot, take Mm -hmm. much more advantage of that than we do. Yeah, and uh, can and should. Uh, it's something I think about all the time and rarely do. You know, it's uh, it's just on that you know long list of things in my mind or on paper uh, that I know I want to accomplish and want to do. But we have to pick and choose yeah. where we spend our time. It, it's real real world allocation of our time resource. Yeah. Uh, but aspirationally, it's very 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 high on my list. Uh, I just haven't taken that step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do y'all have any thoughts? I know we've been talking a long time. Um, no, I, 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 I found it very interesting. I guess I'm, I am curious what, more specifically, what you found. Do your clients appreciate the most? What surprised you about what they think is relevant and important versus what you would have thought? So on my website, the Guiding Wealth website, I actually did a series of blogs about that conversation. Um, so there's, point you there. Um, a lot. So one of the, okay, I don't tell my clients this, but kind of one of my under, when clients engage with me, I want them to think and operate around money differently when they leave my financial planning process. So I don't say that to them because I think that's kind of a weird thing to say. Um, but that's what she reflected a lot on. She's like, I used to think about money this way. And now I think about it this way. I used to do this and now I do this. And so I saw, I got, I was able to see a lot of things that worked and how she paraphrased some of the advice that I gave her. And I'm like, you, you picked up on that. <laughs> um, but a lot of the number stuff, the projections, the things like that, she found them valuable, but it was not 
it was almost an afterthought to her. Mm-hmm. It was all of the other things. Um, another thing I thought was very interesting. If you do a lot of like the life planning stuff, they're like, you know, ask about their families. And I am always a little bit like, eh, that's kind of cheesy. Um, but she started out the conversation by walking through how her grandmother handled the transition, how her mother handled the transition and how she's like, I don't want my granddaughter to handle the transition that way. And so I'm going to change this. And so it really kind of brought in this idea of legacy that I had never thought of before. Um, obviously I think about it in estate planning, you know, legacy in that traditional sense, but the work we do as financial planners, it changes clients' lives, but it literally changes generations of families. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very, very powerful um, idea. And that you don't get outsourced for that. I mean, that's that's something that's very just fundamental. Um, and yeah. you don't outsource empathy. That's a big thing in financial yeah. planning. I True. think that's what's bringing more women into the profession or making women more valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No Th- doubt. Those soft skills. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a whole other topic about women in the profession and <laughs> getting, yeah. them, getting them in and how do we keep them in. And yeah. You know, I would imagine that you know, part of the future of financial planning, you know, as every model of firm has its increased role uh, with public awareness uh, heightened, uh, I would imagine the flexible arrangements that, uh, that could solve some of the challenges that women face in the industry. Mm-hmm. You know, if there is the ability to not you know, for you know, segment of women, you don't have to step out of the profession for X number of years if you want to raise a family and be there. You know, if you can scale back what you're doing and have a flexible arrangement, you know, that, that makes sense. We have the technology now to allow that to happen. Uh, that will be positive for, you know, the, the, the impacted employee. It will be positive for the families. It will be positive for the employer to have that, you know, continuity and not have to have the turnover It'll be positive for clients. It's a it's a no brainer in my mind, but again, it's like most things because technology has progressed. It's more possible now than it was a few years ago to be done well, and that will only uh, be enhanced in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. All of these things they they're contingent on uh, creativity and willingness. Mm-hmm. You know, we will have tools at an ever-increasing rate that solve our problems. How we choose to deal with them and how we choose to use them, you know, again, it's limited by our creativity more than anything. As always, thank you for listening. Anything else? Any other thoughts you have, Casey? I'll save them for another podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's what's hard. You start going and you're like, oh. Oh, this could go any number of directions.